0: All right, it's uh, so exciting to be a pastor. I'm so thankful for the opportunity that uh, God gives me to be able to study His Word and to share it with you. Uh, It's really amazing. (laughs) The Bible is an amazing book. It looks and seems ordinary, maybe at first, but God speaks to us through what He says here, and there is always more than uh, you can maybe imagine. And uh, so it is a privilege to be able to preach, and also a little humbling, because uh, you never can be as good as the passage that you're preaching. And so I am uh, really thankful and grateful and excited about being able to look together with you today at Luke chapter 8. If you'll take your Bible and open with me to uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 22, actually, which is the story that we uh, began to look at last week about Jesus crossing the lake with his disciples And calming the storm. But I want to go back to this story uh, for a minute as we begin, because I think one of the problems that we face as we uh, read the Bible and study it a little more is that we can sometimes become so familiar with what we are reading that we start taking some things for granted that are actually shocking and maybe even a little hard for us to understand at first, which is a, a Problem because the reason that they're there like that is to get us to stop and think. That is part of why God writes the Bible the way that He does to get us to engage and think and respond. But we don't always even see the things that are supposed to slow us down, really, because we're so used to the story. And uh, you could see, I think, how that could happen here because this is a story that uh, most of us have known for a, a long time. Jesus calming. The storm i mean if you uh, grew up going to church at all you probably heard about this from almost the beginning it's like in every uh, children's bible and it's amazing for sure you can see why with jesus speaking to a storm and the storm actually listening that's definitely an awesome and important moment but right after that jesus turns and says something to his disciples that we could almost uh, read over and and miss which is a really surprising thing for Jesus to say and maybe even at first uh, a little troubling for some of you if you hear it because you remember I'm sure how this goes verse 22 Luke tells us one day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them let us go across to the other side of the lake and so The disciples are on a a boat in the middle of of the Sea of Galilee, and they're on that boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee because Jesus asked them to be on that boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Clearly, this was his idea. And yet he's asleep by verse 23. As they sailed, he fell asleep because he's so tired. He's exhausted, really. When suddenly there's this massive storm that comes out of nowhere. And the boat is filling with water. That's why Luke Luke says, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And so obviously, Luke himself is telling us that this is a legitimately scary situation. They were in danger. And so they wake Jesus, which you kind of expect them to do. And they say, we are perishing. In Mark, uh, we see they say, don't you care that we are perishing? But still, whatever they say, they're, they're going to Jesus, which seems like the right thing to do, actually. And Jesus wakes up, and the first thing he does is rebuke the winds and the raging waves. Do you see how it says that in verse 24, maybe? Raging waves. And that's quite a picture, raging, almost like they're an angry person. The waves are raging at Jesus and the disciples. But Jesus speaks, and Luke says they ceased. And there was calm. And he says to them, at this moment, Jesus turns and says to his disciples, after rebuking the wind and the storm and everything's calm, Jesus says, where is your faith? Where is your faith? And that's the question I'm talking about that you could miss. That is a little bit of a surprising response from Jesus when you think about it. Where is your faith? This response is a lack of faith. And Jesus is calling them out on it. And that becomes very clear when you look at the other versions of the story in Matthew and Mark, because they give you kind of another picture of how Jesus said it. Because here maybe you could read it like, okay, where is your faith? But Matthew 8, verse 26 is a little more intense. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Why are you afraid? And that sounds more direct, doesn't it? Why are you afraid? And surprising, too, because it doesn't seem like a hard question to answer, right? Like, why are you afraid? You know, uh, raging waves, one, that's one reason. Boat filled with water, (laughs) that's uh, another reason. In danger, that's a third reason. That seems like why we're afraid. But Jesus says no. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Where is your faith? Your fear is a result of a lack of faith. These two things are connected. That's Matthew, and Mark tells the same story, Mark 4, verse 40, and it's the same question there too. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And I want us to look at that question again, all these questions sort of wrapped up together. Where is your faith? Why are you afraid? For a couple reasons. One big one being that being afraid in this situation seems kind of reasonable to most of us. I mean, the disciples' response actually seems like the reasonable response. And someone might even feel like Jesus' response to the disciples doesn't seem quite fair. Why shouldn't they be afraid? Why does he ask them that? How how else could they be? Why is he asking them about their faith? Why is this a faith issue? And I want us to think about that a little because I think that can be a good question if we ask it right. Not sort of pointing the finger at Jesus but coming uh, to Jesus humbly. This can be an important question for one thing because he's Jesus. And so we can know he's right. This is the right question. Why are you afraid? Where's your faith? These are the right kinds of questions. Meaning the disciples are not right. even if we feel like they are right. And so we have to know, what are we missing? Because honestly, this is not the kind of question that we're normally going to be asking in situations that are maybe like this for us. If we take this scene almost like an illustration of what life can be like for us as a Christian right now, because it it does feel a little like a storm. If you look at the world, the world seems chaotic. And so even though we know the gospel, we know what the Bible says about Jesus, we can kind of feel like fear and hesitation and worry and anxiety and doubt and uncertainty are justified. What else can Jesus expect from us? And so we're not going to get off the boat, maybe, but we can sort of live our lives wishing that we were back on the shore, honestly, and just kind of sitting there looking at the world the storm and looking at what jesus calls us to do and be almost paralyzed maybe not abandoning jesus but questioning jesus for sure and not really going forward either in hope and confidence and that response can feel very reasonable to us that can feel very reasonable because of the circumstances the way life is and so we're not asking ourselves any questions like where is your faith or why are you afraid And if someone did ask us those kinds of questions, they would sound very hard to us. Like, why would you ask me that? What does faith have to do with this? And yet that's exactly what Jesus asked the disciples here. And so we need to know, how can Jesus say this? How can he expect a response that is so different from what pretty much the whole world would expect in that moment? And I think there are a couple parts of the answer that are important for you to understand before we really get to the heart of it. But one is just that Jesus is not condemning all natural fear here, obviously. And so someone says, boo, and you jump. That's not sin. (laughs) That's not the point. He knows that you are human. And so you don't want to make this passage say more than it does, because there are different kinds of fear, and Jesus knows the heart, and he knows the kind of fear that the disciples are struggling with is connected to a lack of faith. That's the fear that's really a problem, a fear that's connected to a lack of faith. And faith, of course, for Jesus is not just being hopeful, it's tied to particular truths in God's word. And what that means is that there is something the disciples should have known that was revealed in God's word that should have impacted the way they responded, that they were not believing in that moment. And so Jesus addresses it not because he's being unkind or because he has unrealistic expectations or because he wants his disciples to be superhuman or something, but because he's using this moment to teach them something he knew they needed to know, like absolutely needed to know about him. Because you keep reading the story of Jesus and the disciples, and it doesn't get easier for them. In fact, it wasn't going to be long before Jesus was going to be going to heaven and calling on these disciples to play a really important role in what he was going to continue to do on this planet. And you need to understand like a really important role to the point where we wouldn't be here if they didn't do what God was calling them to do and yet doing that playing that role following jesus where he was leading them was going to be really difficult and potentially frightening because things were not going to go the way they expected at all when they first started following jesus because jesus was going to be rejected by the jews and the kingdom that they were hoping in was going to sort of be postponed in a sense at least in terms of how they expected it to be established because they hoped he would be a king who would defeat evil and bring blessing to his people in that moment and yet he was going to be crucified and they were going to be persecuted for following jesus and sent out with the gospel mostly to the gentiles by the end where they were going to see some response for sure some amazing things but also a lot of rejection too mostly rejection and so if that's where things were headed jesus needed to get them ready Because to play that role, they they needed to be courageous when it would have felt like they had a whole lot of reasons not to be. And so it's like Jesus designed this moment, you know, what's happening on this boat, this story and then actually the next, to teach them something about himself that he knew would stick when things got difficult. Because it's almost exactly what life was going to be like for them in the future, really. I mean, I, I... Keep thinking this week, if you were going to draw a picture as an illustration of life for the disciples in the book of Acts, you might draw this scene because here Jesus is being rejected by the religious leadership of Israel and asking his disciples to get on a boat and go with him to a Gentile region. That's why they're on their lake, on the lake. They're going away from Israel to the Gentiles. And when they get there, we're going to see they're going to face demonic resistance big time they're suddenly in the middle of this spiritual war and then one gentile person gets saved in a miraculous way and yet the rest reject them mostly probably having something to do with money which like i said like i said is pretty much how it goes for the disciples in the early church and when it did you could see them looking back when it all happens and beginning to wonder a little because if they were scared on the boat with jesus in the middle of the sea of galilee You would think they would be scared then because Jesus is not going to be with them physically anymore in the same way when all that happens. And if the storm caused questions that day, the crucifixion was going to be more intense. And so you could see them looking back on Jesus being crucified and how things turned out and what God was calling them to do and having some questions and some fear and it feeling honestly Chaotic for a lot of them as they end up living their lives as refugees, marginalized, and attacked for following Jesus. And you could see them, I keep saying, but you you could, you could see them thinking, are we perishing? Is that what this is? Is this God's judgment on Jesus's mission? And that's really the, the question behind their fear and the issue Jesus is addressing with the disciples that day and why he responds the way he does. Because the disciples would have looked at storms and what happens on the sea a little differently than we would nowadays. They're, they're not looking at their weather apps on their, on their phone, if you know what I'm saying. They see these things as acts of God directly, and especially water and storms and the sea, because that has this long Old Testament history of being the way God judges his enemies and people who aren't being faithful to do what he wanted. So think the flood. Think the Red Sea. Think Jonah when he's running away from God. Especially think about Jonah, actually, because the sailors that day with Jonah were facing a storm as well and asking the same kinds of questions as the disciples. And the answer they got was to throw Jonah overboard because he was doing something wrong. And that response makes sense, really, because if Jonah was on the way to do what God wanted him to do, you wouldn't expect a storm. And if Jesus is the promised Old Testament Savior, you wouldn't expect such a shameful death and so much pain and persecution for the people who were following him. And so Jesus knows that the disciples are going to need some big-time assurance that he's not Jonah. As they're going to the Gentiles, as they're facing demonic resistance, as the Jews are rejecting them, because those are circumstances where it's going to feel very reasonable to be afraid and to hide and to run away and to not want to do what Jesus wants and to wonder about Jesus and to get upset and to have questions about whether or not they got on the right boat and whether or not they should just jump off or throw Jesus off. And of course, for them to accomplish the mission God wants them to accomplish, they can't do that. They have to stay on the boat in the middle of the storm. And so Jesus knows he needs to take that whole question away from them and dramatically show them why this kind of fear and uncertainty is not an option and why in spite of their circumstances and the way things look, they have absolutely no excuse. And so as they're standing there soaking wet, gasping for breath, they're pulse racing. He asks them, where is your faith? Why are you so afraid? In other words, think, think about this. You have to think, you can't just react to your circumstances. You have to look at me and what you know about me, and then you can look at your circumstances. But first you have to look at me. I show you a video of someone in a little car going about 100 miles per hour off a 90 degree drop, and they're crying, and they're like, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, and they have no hope, and they're just out of control with fear, as if their whole life is over. You say, that makes sense. That's not surprising. But then I tell you, it's a roller coaster. And you laugh, and it seems a little silly, and you're like, okay, I understand adrenaline, but hopelessness and out of control fear doesn't make sense really, if you see the big picture. And you see Jesus, you really see Jesus, and it changes your perspective. Fear seems reasonable when you're looking at the waves, but fear does not seem reasonable when you're looking at Jesus. And so I want you to see Jesus. We have to see Jesus, because it's not like the apostles are the only ones with a mission. And the rest of us are sort of supposed to just sit around and wait. We have a mission as a church to represent Jesus and take this gospel out. And a lot of times that's going to seem hard and scary. And looking at our circumstances, fear and indecision and sitting there wondering and doubting and doing nothing is going to seem to make sense. But we can't just look at our circumstances. We have to look at Jesus. And I want to give you two reasons from these stories looking at jesus that we should not be afraid that this kind of fear is not reasonable and the first is because he's sovereign lord over nature or we might even say over everything in this world that seems like chaos and we talked about this last week verses 22 to 25 but there's something here i think that i missed a little Uh, maybe uh, because we're living thousands of years later in america where Uh, we just think of nature and storms so differently. We've divided off the natural and supernatural world so tightly that when we think about Jesus calming the storm, we're thinking just about waves and rain and the physical event itself, which is amazing, obviously, because, you know, Jesus just looks at the storm and says, stop, and the storm does what he says. And so that's a, a pretty clear demonstration of his power over the natural world, for sure. But if we step back and think about what storms on the sea represented in the ancient world, it becomes even more significant because storms and the sea especially were like symbols, like symbols, clear symbols of disorder, chaos, judgment, and hell even. Basically everything evil and wicked. And so, you know, in the ancient Near Eastern world, the area right around where Jesus was located, they had hundreds of years and like a gazillion stories talking about the storm and the sea like this. And so, for example, you know how nowadays we have evolution as our myth of how the world was created. The ancients had their myths as well. And one of the most important in the world surrounding Israel was of one God battling the sea God and overcoming and somehow bringing order to the universe. The universe itself was kind of thought of as eternal, but order was brought to the universe as a result of this great battle. And you read Canaanite literature, actually, and Canaan, you know, where that's right where Jesus was, and they have all these stories about Baal, or you would say Baal. And they believed in a lot of gods, you remember back then. And one of their most famous stories about Baal is about how he became king. And the way they said Baal became king uh, was that the sea god, for some reason, didn't like Baal. And they wanted the other gods to give him up. And so they send uh, Baal to do battle with the sea god. And he overcomes. And he becomes king of the gods. It's funny. I was listening to a lecture this week called Kingship Through Chaos Kampf. And that's a German word. So you got to be like, Kampf. And uh, that just means chaos, basically. I guess it sounds fancy. But it was all about these stories in the culture surrounding Israel about gods like Baal becoming king by defeating the storm, the sea, or snakes even. And so that is one reason the authors in the Old Testament go to great lengths to show that God is the one who's sovereign over the sea. And this idea of God's sovereignty over the waters starts on pretty much the first page, if you think about Genesis chapter 1, because the first couple verses tell us that the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And the waters represent a kind of chaos there, not evil, that's important in the Bible, not evil, nothing bad, but a world without form and void. And so God starts taking that disorder in the rest of the chapter and making a home, something beautiful to bring blessing to the people. He is the king who turns the chaos into a cosmos. And it's not a battle for him. He just speaks. And yet after man sins, of course, things change. And so it's not just disorder now. There's actual evil. And there are some pictures in the Old Testament as illustrations of that evil, like uh, a snake, like Storms are like the sea. The sea can be a metaphor for that, which is why in the book of Revelation we learn that there is no more sea in the new heavens and the new earth. Because John knows the sea doesn't just represent disorder the way it did in Genesis 1. It represents evil and destruction. And God is going to fix what man has broken. He's going to bring order and peace and blessing to the universe. And the Old Testament tells us the way he's going to do that is through this Messiah, That he's going to send who's going to take on evil and absolutely crush it and the bible tells us a lot of specific things about what this messiah is going to be like it gives us some pictures like genesis 3 it says he's going to crush the head of the snake he's going to take on evil and he's going to defeat it and yet one of the one place we find a lot of those pictures that we don't always realize we're finding as many of those pictures is actually in the book of psalms About David when David writes about himself really a lot of times he's writing about the Messiah because God had made a great promise to David about his descendants and that one of his descendants would be the one who crushes the head of the serpent and who brings salvation to his people and one important Psalm where we find some of those promises is actually Psalm 89 actually and psalm 89 was written when it looked like maybe god had forgotten his promise to david and so the psalmist is wondering if it's all over and he's finding hope by remembering god's character and what god has said he was going to do through this future davidic king and in the beginning of the psalm he's thinking about god and about how unique he is and one of the things he says that makes god unique is his power over the sea and the enemies of god's people psalm 89 9 and 10 You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Which I guess is not so surprising to see written about God. But you know what he says later? Because ultimately this is a psalm about the Messiah. And so he moves from thinking about the character of God to the promises he made to David. And he remembers this one promise in particular that God makes about what he's going to do through David's descendant in verses 24 and 25. Or he at least reflects on the meaning of the promise where he says, My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name his horn shall be exalted. Now listen to this. I will set his hand on the sea. And his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so, you know, the point is that Jesus in Luke 8, all these years later, is looking at his disciples after he calms the storm and saying, basically, That's me. Do do, do you still not? know who I am. If you believe I am the Messiah, you should have known I can do this. This is what I've come into this world to do, not just to you know stop it from raining but to overcome what you think things like this storm represent which is what i have been proving the whole time as i've been healing the blind and raising the dead and preaching the kingdom and so even if i look ordinary it's time you start believing that i am the divine messiah God sent to defeat the forces of evil and to exercise dominion over this universe and bring things into order and crush the head of the snake and calm the storm and rule the universe and bring blessing to God's people. Don't look at the storm. Stop looking at the storm. Look at me. Look at me. That's that's one reason Jesus is telling the disciples and us not to be afraid. Now, two, uh, a... A second reason, because there's another story that comes after this one, which, if anything, is even more intense and almost like an exclamation point, it seems to me. It starts in verse 26, but it's connected to this story on the boat. Because if Jesus really is the divine Messiah who's going to do battle with the forces of evil, not only is he going to have to deal with the problems in the natural world, we need to see that he's able to do deal with the problems in the supernatural one as well. He needs not only to be sovereign Lord over nature, we need to know that he's sovereign Lord over the supernatural. And so verse 26, Luke writes then. That's the the setting, the very first word, then. After Jesus calmed the storm, they sailed, he said, uh, until they reached the country of the Gerasenes. And when Matthew tells the story, you know, he calls it the country of the Gadarenes. And that's just because Gadara was the largest larger town in the area. Uh, Gerasa, or what's sometimes called Gergasa, was a much smaller town, almost like a village. And so this is not some big contradiction between the stories, it's just like how sometimes you might tell people the small town you're from, and other times you might use the name of a bigger city uh, that's close by instead. And Matthew uses the big city and Luke the smaller town, but it doesn't really make much of a difference for the story, really. But what is more important is that both of these cities are across the lake from the part of Judea that Jesus was from. As Luke says again, verse 26, the the country of Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And Galilee, obviously, was a region in the northern part of Israel. And Jesus was a Galilean, and most of his followers were, too, except for Judas. And yet they sailed across the lake to the other side, to a part of the country that Luke calls the region of Gerasenes and Matthew the Gadarenes. But most people called the Decapolis which was a strange place for a Jewish person to ever want to go because it was mostly Gentile. There were a lot of Romans there and Roman soldiers, thus the name Decapolis, and all kinds of things that Jewish people would have considered unclean and would have made them impure. And yet I imagine after what the disciples had just been through, they were pretty happy to get off the boat at first, but not for long because the moment they stepped onto the dry land, Luke tells us, there met him a man from the city who had demons. And Matthew uh, tells us there were actually two of them. But for some reason, Luke makes a choice just to focus on one here, maybe because he's the one who actually did become a Christian. I don't know. But what we do know is that these men were fierce, like wild animals, really. In fact, Matthew says they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. And one reason, of course, that they were so dangerous and wild is because they were controlled by demons, which I know living where we live right now, uh, some people almost treat as a joke, but the Bible definitely doesn't. And for most of history, people haven't. And still, in large parts of the world, people don't. We're in the minority if we don't believe in demons, for sure, because most people throughout history have believed in some sort of spirit world, And God reveals a little of that world to us in the Bible by explaining that there are supernatural angelic beings we call demons who are at work in this world right now in many different ways. And most of what they do is behind the scenes, actually, where we don't see it. But sometimes because they hate God and they hate people, they work in a way that is much more direct and they attack people and they oppress them. And when someone was oppressed by a demon, it was pretty physical, like they were made mute or they were thrown on the ground, or they were blinded. And obviously, it wasn't the same thing as a physical sickness, exactly. People in Jesus's day were smart enough to know the difference between being sick and having a demon. This was a supernatural supernatural phenomena in which a living spiritual being, a fallen angel, literally took over a person's mind and body. Primarily, it seems to torment them. That's the thing. It was less about temptation and more just about torture, really having a demon. Demons, they're not kind beings. They are evil, and they find pleasure in using their power to humiliate and oppress people. Like this man here, Luke says, for a long time, he had worn no clothes. He had demons, and for a long time, he had worn no clothes, which seems strange maybe, and I don't think it's because demons don't like clothes. I think it's because they hate people, and they enjoy messing with them, which is why this man was having to go around naked, because they wanted to humiliate him. And Luke says they forced him to live in awful, uncomfortable places as well. Verse 27, he had not lived in a house but among the tombs, which, of course, has to be like the last place most normal human beings would ever want to stay, among the tombs, especially at night. And I'm pretty sure that this man wouldn't have been different if he had a choice. But he didn't have a choice. He was powerless, and that's the point. The demons wanted to make his life as miserable as possible. And you know what? They could. He was powerless to resist, and it seems like so So was everyone else as well. There was no one who was able to help him. Mark adds a detail when he tells the story. In Mark 5, verse 3, he says, And he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. Luke tells us uh, that in verse 28, they would keep him under guard, which I'm pretty sure is the last job that you would ever want to be chosen for. Uh, You know, it's your night to guard the demon-possessed man because it never worked for long. Even if they bound him with chains, Luke tells us the demons empowered him to be stronger than he naturally was, and so he was able to break those chains apart. Like when You might if a child tied your hands together with a little rope. Absolutely no one, Mark said, had the power to subdue him. And so it's like the demons are just toying with him and with them. And I say demons because obviously a person with one demon would be bad enough. That's scary. But verse 30, when Jesus asks this man, what is your name, the demon answers, Legion. He can't even answer for himself and say his name. I don't think his mother named him Legion. It was the demons who were responding to Jesus. And they responded by saying Legion, Luke tells us, for many demons had entered him. And so Legion was kind of a military word and uh, one that they used for the largest group of Roman soldiers, which was apparently a unit of around 6,000 men. And Jesus usually doesn't ask for demons' names, obviously. And so I think God's probably setting this up so we can get a better picture. Because here are these demonic forces who hate people and who oppress people and who torture people at will, making them do things that they would never want to do and making them hurt themselves and nobody can stop them. There is no one who's able to do anything about it. All they can try to do is stay away from him. And yet here's Jesus and he's stepping off the boat and almost immediately he's confronted by thousands of these powerful demons who obviously have all this authority and power. And what happens? What happens? Look at this, verse 27. This man's just beaten down, Luke says. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And yet, verse 28, when he saw Jesus, what happened? He cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And again, Mark gives us an added detail when he says, and when he saw Jesus from afar... He ran and fell down before him. And that helps me, because I'm just uh, I'm imagining being with the disciples that day when they had gotten off the boat, if you think about this for a minute. Because it's maybe early morning at this point, at best, because Mark told us they left in the evening, and so it's probably a little bit dark you know, uh, that time at dusk. And they're, they're pulling the boat in. When they see this figure far off, they can't quite make him out, but they hear him. They hear screaming. And he's running at them as fast as he can. And he's naked. And so obviously, he's looking wild and crazy. And I don't know, but maybe even the disciples had heard of him, because it's not that far from where they're from. And this has been going on a long time, you remember Luke told us. So I can imagine this man might have developed some kind of reputation. I don't know. But while I'm not sure exactly what the disciples were thinking at this point, still I'm guessing they are wanting to get back on the boat when suddenly the man just falls flat before Jesus. This was Luke's words, verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down and said with a loud voice, which is obviously not worship. Demons aren't going to worship Jesus with a pure heart. Demons don't do that. This is basically just fear. I mean, these thousands of demons who have frightened an entire city are frightened of Jesus. And you can hear that in what the demons say to him, verse 28. What have you to do with us? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment torment me. And you know, when I was reading this passage, I circled that word begged. Because begging is something you do as a last resort, like when you have no power. And that's the thing. These demons are completely at the mercy of Jesus. I beg you, they say here. And they begged, Luke tells us in verse 31, and they begged, he says again in verse 32, and the first thing they begged Jesus is that he wouldn't torture them. Do not torment us. Which even humanly speaking, I mean, just in human terms, is pretty awesome, really. Because, like, if you had one man versus a thousand soldiers, and you saw those thousand soldiers all falling down at one man's feet and saying, don't torture us, that would be power. And yet 1000 human soldiers don't compare in power really at all to 2000 or more demons. Mark says there were about 2000 demons. 2000 demons versus 2000 soldiers. It's not a battle. In second kings 19, one angel kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers by himself. And yet when all these demons come into the presence of Jesus, they know, they completely know that they're in the presence of someone so much greater. They even call him, you see, Jesus, son of the most high God. And so it's kind of like the demons are answering the disciples' question, aren't they? You remember how the disciples looked at Jesus calming the storm and said to one another, who then is this? that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. And the demons respond, you don't know? He is the son of the most high God. And they're using a title that recognizes his exalted authority over them, which is why they have to beg. They can't just speak to him. They have to beg first that he doesn't torture them. And Matthew actually adds that they said, don't torment us before the time, which Seems like the demons recognize that they're fighting a losing battle. There's a time appointed, which maybe shows up in the second request they make, that Jesus doesn't send them to the abyss, verse 31. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And abyss literally means bottomless pit. It's used in Revelation to describe a place where demons are kept until the day of judgment. And it seems like such a horrible place that even these demons are frightened of it. And they obviously know Jesus has the power and authority to send them there. And so they begged him to let them enter a large herd of pigs that was feeding there on the hillside instead. Which, of course, is interesting. And I have some questions about in terms of why, like, did they have to enter something? And even animals being possessed is is kind of interesting. And uh, while I don't have all the answers, the most important thing to see in verse 32 is that Jesus gave them permission. He couldn't, They couldn't just act. He had to give them permission. Now a large herd of pigs, Mark tells us around 2,000, was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And so while these demons are horrible and listen to no one and are just these raging, furious, violent beings with an uncontrollable, unending appetite for destruction, when Jesus speaks, they listen. They do exactly what he says. And it's not like a contest either. It's not a challenge. Jesus doesn't have to do any rituals or dances or say certain powerful words to get the demons to listen. He just has to speak and they do what he says. That's power. You look at Jesus, you are looking at a warrior like the world has never seen before. And so i you know, if we look at this world by itself, of course, and our circumstances and at what God's calling us to do as a church and at this battle that we're engaged in, it can be tempting to become a little frightened and wondered, can, can Jesus really do everything God's promised? We think about all this evil And it feels like this huge storm with all these problems in the natural world as the world itself is croning and crying out over man's sin and rebellion against a holy God. And all this supernatural evil. And it feels like Satan and his demons have such power as well. And we can get scared and that fear can feel justified. But it's not justified if we look at Jesus. And we need to look at Jesus. You need to see Jesus. Can he do this? He can do this. He can do everything God's promised. And so while fear may seem reasonable looking at the waves and may seem reasonable looking at these demons, fear is not reasonable when you look at Jesus because he is the sovereign Lord over the natural world and over the supernatural one as well. Jesus speaks. And nature listens. Jesus speaks. And demons listen. Jesus speaks. Will you listen? Will you trust him? Because can I tell you something that is actually scary, something legitimately scary? A lot of people don't. I'm here today. We're looking at the Bible. I'm making an announcement. That's what this is. I'm telling you, God sent his son. He sent the Messiah. It's Jesus. And he's come to fulfill the scripture. He has come to battle evil. He's come to bring peace to the world. He's coming to establish himself as king and to bring blessing to God's people. And yet a lot of people hear that and reject Jesus. Now and even back then as well in verses 34 through 39, we see Luke showing us one big, scary reason why they do. Because we've got excuses. (laughs) We like to think that we're good people and that people are good people. And it's only weird, you know, really weird, strange, demon-possessed people out there in the middle of nowhere. Like that guy living in the tombs, that are the problem. But the reality is much worse, much worse Luke writes, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country, which makes sense, of course. Like, this was awesome. And so they run, and they're telling everyone what they just saw happen in the city and in the country, and everyone they meet, because they've never seen anything like this happen before. And so, of course, the people come, verse 35. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And you know what? they were afraid which is pretty much how the disciples felt as well after the calming of the storm you remember verse 25 and they were afraid and so it's like this is a moment for them an undeniable moment they are seeing something about jesus that is similar to what the disciples saw about him and Luke tells us they wanted to know more about what had happened exactly, verse 36. And so he says, Those who had seen it told them how the demon possessed man had been healed. And you know how they responded to what they heard? Because this is amazing. This is amazing because, you know, they had such a clear illustration of what God was doing and God's great saving power. And they see what Jesus can do. And as a result, they know who Jesus is. At least they have a sense of who he is, which is why they're afraid. I mean, they're not scared of the demon-possessed man anymore, obviously, because they see he's healed and he's in his right mind and he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Luke makes a big deal of that if you look at the text. And so you have to ask, what are they scared about now? And Luke wants you to see that they're scared he says it twice end of verse 35 they were afraid and end of verse 37 they were seized with great fear but why right what are they so afraid of obviously it's something about Jesus like the disciples they're thinking who is this man but you know what that's not all because unlike the disciples what do they do they ask Jesus to leave They don't go with Jesus. They don't want to learn more from Jesus. And so they see who Jesus is, yeah, and that's scary for sure, but that's not all. Because you know what's really scary? What's really scary is Jesus exercising that kind of authority over them. Because if he's sovereign Lord over the storms and sovereign Lord over the supernatural, then he's sovereign Lord over you. And they did not want that. They did not want that. Probably partially, at least because they could see that his priorities were so different than theirs. Because his defeat of evil and salvation of this demonized man cost them a lot of money, actually. There were about 2,000 pigs, $50 a pig. That's like $100,000 or so, gone. And so you know what they're interested in at this moment? It's not salvation. It's their bank account. And that makes them really scared of Jesus because a person like that with power like that and authority like that and priorities like that is dangerous to greedy, selfish people. And so they would rather have their sin and all of its consequences than Jesus. And so instead of thanking him and instead of falling down before him and worshiping him and for delivering them from this great threat that had been plaguing them all these years, the only thing they can think about is getting rid of Jesus. And this is almost overwhelming. It's so sad and evil. If you're sad for demon-possessed people, you should be sad about people like this because they would rather have, and I'm quoting, they would rather have a maniac than the son of God. They would rather be terrified by Satan than terrified by God. They would rather endure the presence of the demonic danger than the presence of divine deliverance. They preferred the unholy to the holy. They preferred a naked tomb dweller over the glorious Lord of life, which has been man's whole problem since the beginning. Since the beginning, God's got this intention to bless, and man wants blessing, just not the relationship with God, just not God. And so verse 37, then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And Luke just says, ask, but Matthew says they begged him. They begged him to leave their region. And you know what? Jesus listened, which is kind of the sad irony in this story, actually. Jesus rebukes the storms. Jesus defeats the demons, but Jesus, the sovereign Lord of the universe, listens to this group of sinful, selfish people. And verse 37 says, he got in the boat, and he returned, and he never came back. Though he did send a missionary to represent him, because they needed a savior. They might have thought the demon-possessed man was really the evil one, but their reaction exposed them all sitting in their houses with their families, going about their lives, feeling like they're good people. But the Savior of the world comes, bringing salvation, and they reject him. They need salvation more than they know it. And so Jesus sends pretty much the last person anyone would have ever expected, but the only person in this story who responds to Jesus the way we should after being delivered by Jesus. Verse 35, Luke says, when the people came out to see what happened. They came to jesus and found the man from whom the demons have gone sitting at the feet of jesus which is kind of luke's way of saying being a disciple of jesus sitting at his feet it's like technical language to describe a disciple i'm here to learn teach me and while we don't know how much teaching jesus got in i imagine at least that jesus was able to talk with this man about who he was and to proclaim to him the good news of the kingdom of god and it's clear he listened because all he wanted from this moment on was to be with Jesus. Luke Luke says, the man from whom the demons had gone, verse 38, begged that he might be with him, which is an indication to me that this man's not just delivered from demons. He's been forgiven. He's been changed. He's become what we call a Christian. And yet, you know, even though he's the one in the story who listens to Jesus, Jesus doesn't listen to him. (laughs) But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much, look at this, Jesus had done for him. And all those years later, I can't help but think that must have been such an encouragement to the disciples looking back as they were being persecuted, going out to the Gentiles, living in these new countries and tempted to become scared, to look at what was happening and start to doubt. They could look back at Jesus in the middle of the storm and remember, He's the sovereign Lord over the natural world. He is the Messiah. He is the King God promised who's going to overcome the chaos. And we know he can do that because we've seen he's sovereign Lord over the supernatural world as well. And he took us, you know what, he took us on that boat, across that lake, through that storm, into the face of demonic opposition to do what? To do what? To transform the life of one single solitary Gentile and turn him into a missionary. Which, of course, is what we know God is doing in this world right now through Jesus. Because we don't know everything, obviously. We don't understand everything. There's so much that's confusing and that looks like a a storm to us. But we know, we know Jesus is the promised Messiah. We know he has come to defeat evil. And we know one day he's going to establish God's kingdom. We know one day he's going to reverse the curse. We know one day he's going to bring full, complete blessing to God's people. But right now, he is taking us through the storm to save the unexpected, to rescue the oppressed, and to watch as God transforms them. And sometimes as we're going, a lot of times, it might look like he's sleeping. And you know, people around us might look at our life in the middle of that and say, they have a reason to be discouraged. That makes sense. They should be scared. They have a reason to be scared. But Jesus says, don't look at the storm. Look at me. Look at me. Where is your faith? This is what faith is for. It's not for just sitting on the shore. It's for getting in the boat and being with Jesus. And so if you're in the middle of the storm, you're in the right place because you're with Jesus. And so you don't have to be frightened because Jesus is the one God sent to conquer evil. And Jesus proved it by demonstrating his power over nature and his power over demons. And while you may not understand everything about what he's doing and why he's doing it, that's okay because you're not Jesus. You're not the Messiah, he is. It's not your job to accomplish salvation and fix everything that's wrong with the world. It's his. That's what the Father sent Jesus to do. And it's your job, it's my job, it's our job to trust him, to trust him. Will you trust him? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you still speak so loudly, so clearly. Holy Spirit, open up the eyes of our hearts that we might see Jesus and be transformed by Jesus into people who are not afraid in the middle of the storm. Maybe we struggle with natural fear, but then we look to you, and we are happy and confident and grateful to be in the boat with you, because we know where you're taking us, and we know that you'll get us there. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.